Hey, Sam. Guess what? X-Men Origins Wolverine was the best X-Men movie! Not okay! Welcome to the 13 Days of X-Men, Monkey Off My Backlog's second annual holiday limited series. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is the Gabby to my Laura, Sam. Does that make Nigel Jonathan? Joining us today is Nigel of the Hyperfixations and Nanny Ogg's Book Club Podcasts. Thanks for joining us today, Nigel. Hello. Oh my god, I nearly fell off my chair. Hello. The problem with being as short as I am is falling off a chair is a serious thing. I am so happy to be here today to talk about Nightwatch. <laughs> Wrong podcast! What do you mean? This is Nanny Og's book club, right? You're here and Nigel's here and I read Nightwatch. <laughs> <laughs> this pays off in about two years. <laughs> this joke has a payoff. Last year, because movie marathons are a holiday tradition for us, we watched nine Fast and Furious movies and released nine podcast episodes over nine days. This time, we're raising the stakes by watching the 13 movies in the Fox X-Men series. This is episode 10, 2017's Logan. Before we get started talking about Logan, though, Nigel... Whenever we have a new guest on this series, we like to ask them about their holiday plans. Do you have any plans for this upcoming holiday? Cry. What are you going to be watching or listening to or doing while you cry? I'm going to watch my favorite film. Which is? Mary Poppins. That's your favorite film? Mary Poppins is my favorite film ever, and I only ever watch it once a year on Christmas Day. Don't you guys watch a Bond film, a late Quantum. era Bond Quantum. film? You watch Quantum or you watch a, no, no, no. Now you watch the whole thing, but it's a smile and nod when you get to the bedtime part. Is this, is this accurate? Yes. This is just sort of a thing which happened by chance. And then also because Orty likes to do it a lot is show the Bond films because they, they know that's when the dads and also like gays yeah. will be watching. <laughs> 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 okay, so Quantum of Solace is not your favorite movie. No. Okay. It's not even my favorite Bond film, Sam. Weren't we going to have like a whole thing about this? Like a whole podcast thing? Weren't we going to do that? Yeah, we really should have done that. That would have been a good idea. Huh. Why is Mary Poppins your favorite movie? Please tell me it's Dick Van Dyke's accent. I don't know. As far as I can remember, I've watched it every year since I have memories. Which, to be fair, my memory has deteriorated, shockingly. It's more so that I have a sense of things that happened before, like, the last year and a half. And, that, like, the last year and a half is when I have concrete-ish memories. It was definitely a thing. And Orti used to always show it anyway on Christmas Day. They have, like, kind of a set thing where they're like, we'll show these set couple of films. They used to always show Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as well, which is... My number three favorite film of all time. Dick Van Dyke, double feature. Yeah, well, do you want to know what my second favorite film of all time is? It's Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So what you're saying is your top three movies, two are written 
No, wait, sh- that's Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming did write a movie in your top three, just not a Bond film. Yes, that is correct. Hey, look at that. And Ian Fleming was friends with Roald Dahl. Yes, and Roald Dahl wrote a Bond film. And P.L. Travers was an irascible Australian woman. I'd love to be an irascible Australian woman. I know! I just said that the other day! (laughs) Or something very close to it. (laughs) What was I going to say? Yeah, there's also a common thread which ties back into, I think, the first ever episode of Monkey I did. Back when I was like, I hadn't realized I was trans, and I'm like, I... I am an old man. I have old man tastes. And yeah, I was raised on very old music and very old films and very old game shows. <laughs> do you like holiday movies, like specifically holiday movies? And if so, do you have a favorite? What do you define as a holiday movie? Before she tells you that, I just feel compelled to warn you. So we did, you know, so this is what, number number 10? We're on day 10. Two or three days ago, when it was just Tessa and I on an episode, I started to realize about halfway through that I think she was psychoanalyzing me. So just be warned, something's happening here, right? So like, we're gonna, she may diagnose you at the end, it's hard to say, she may charge you for the hour. Okay, well, I'm gonna lead in with this one. I don't like Christmas. Suck on that one, Sigmund Freud. That answers a lot of questions. I'm definitely not Freudian. If I was going to be anything, it would be... No, I don't even think I'd be that. What questions does it answer? (laughs) Nothing. Sam just didn't like how many questions I was asking. Yeah. All right. That answers my question, actually. So your favorite things to watch at Christmas time are not, in fact, Christmas movies. They're just Christmas movies by association. Yes. However, films which take place at Christmas. Let me see. The Holiday? Yeah. That's a good one. What other films which are set at Christmas? Uh, I don't really like Home Alone. I don't know. I don't particularly care for Christmas, and neither do I care for its associated me. Ooh, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. That's a song. No, there's an animated film to go with the song. What? Where Grandma gets run over by a reindeer, and she ends up in hospital in basically a coma, and this business is trying to, like, buy her thing out, and they, like, try and gaslight her and the grandpa and the young child into believing it never happened, which is why the song says, but as for me and grandpa, we believe they're being gaslit in the film. Is this a Christmas movie or a horror film? I have never seen an episode of our podcast go off the rails so quickly. Okay, here we go. Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer is a 2000 Canadian-American animated Christmas TV special directed by Phil Roman. The special was first released on home video in October, then aired on the WB Network on December 21st, 2000. Titan story based on the 1979 novelty song of the same name. So it wasn't released at the same time, but it goes with the song for some reason. There was another one which went with it, and I've forgotten it but I was thinking about it, like, the other day. It's about a boy who was so bad that Christmas gets cancelled entirely. I think his name is, like, Jeremy. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. And I remember I found it, like, a year ago, where I was trying to remember what it was called, and I managed to track it down, and then I closed all of my tabs on accident, so I lost it. And I don't know what it is, but the plot of it is he's so bad that Christmas gets cancelled. It sounds like all the things you like are anti-Christmas. 
Yes, I like Ebenezer Scrooge and the Grinch before their miraculous transformations. Ebenezer Scrooge was the victim. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, Ebenezer Scrooge has done a lot of bad things, like saying that if people can't work, well, there's the asylum or the prison they can go to. That's not great. Now that we know how you feel about Christmas, you, you know, you mentioned book. a little bit earlier that, you know, during the first time that we recorded together, that you had the pop culture taste of an old man, which means you should certainly have enjoyed this film because, Tessa? This film takes its inspiration, very loose inspiration, from the Old Man Logan comic storyline by Mark Miller and Steve McNiven. It takes place in an alternate 2029 where mutants have all but disappeared. Logan, now elderly and dying of the adamantium that was put into him all those years ago, runs a limo service trying to save up enough money for a boat to take him and Charles away from the Americas, so Charles, who now has ALS, can't hurt anyone with his unpredictable telepathy. But when a young mutant with similar powers to Wolverine's own arrives on the run from a group of Reavers, Logan has to take one final stand. Let's start with just, like, first thoughts on this film. Nigel, had you seen this film before? Yeah, I watched this film in 2018. I didn't see it in cinema, though I wanted to. It came out on Sky Cinema. It was one of their premiere ones that came out. So, yeah, I watched it, like, the day it came out on Sky Cinema. I really, really liked the film. This is not, like, a universally held opinion in my house. My brother really really hates the film. He thinks it's stupid and doesn't like that they killed Charles Xavier. And it's boring and dumb. That's a very succinct opinion. Yeah. Sam, what were your first thoughts on rewatching this film, which I definitely saw with you in the theater? I thought it was stupid that they killed Charles and it was boring and dumb. That is not what I thought. <laughs> I thought pretty much, well, I, I, I can't say the opposite of that because it is sad what happened to Charles. Although I will point out from the time that we saw this in the theater to today, Tessa has seen several seasons of ER and knows who Eric LaSalle is now. So that that was a nice quality ad. I don't know. I mean, like, this is clearly the best of the Wolverine movies. I love Daphne Keene. I, I really like her character. I like her in the comics. As I've said many, many times lately, the Laura and Gabby adventures of young Wolverines is like one of the best storylines. Who are Laura and Gabby? So Laura is X-23, Daphne Keene's character in Logan. In the comic book, she is cloned at one point. So there's like another clone that's named Gabby. So there's Laura and Gabby, and they have a pet Wolverine named Jonathan. Oh. It's quite excellent. So Laura and Gabby live in an apartment with Jonathan, which we've come all the way around, right? A human named Wolverine and a Wolverine with a human name. And so Laura and Gabby and Jonathan live together. Gabby has one blade in each hand, you know, because Laura has two. And so Gabby has one. And Logan, like, checks in on them every so often. You know, dad coming in to check on the children's every once in a while. It's like Marvel C.S. Lewis. The adults only show up at the end. Gabby's superhero name is Honey Badger. It's quite excellent. Would recommend. Will probably recommend in a a future segment. So James Mangold, who wrote and directed this film, he also directed The Wolverine. He sees The Wolverine and Logan as a match set. Together, you with those two movies, tells us everything we need to know about Wolverine as a character. The first one is more about him embracing the Wolverine persona. And the second one is about 
him as an old man, as a person who's trying to reconcile what he's done in the past with who he is as a person. Hugh Jackman has been playing this character for how many movies? Almost 10? <laughs> I think he's been in all of them, almost. He's been preparing for it his whole life. This is his favorite. What do we think about what this film adds to our knowledge of him as a character? It's the first Fox film which actually addresses the fact that his name is not actually Logan, it's James. This is a thing which really annoyed me as a comic book fan because I learned this fact and then it was never addressed and it's like, here's a piece of information that I know. Doesn't it come up at the beginning of Origins? It does. Which has been, we discussed this yesterday or two days ago, what is time? That story has been completely retconned. So in theory, this would be the first time, although this is like an alternate third universe, maybe? I noticed that. I thought that was interesting that he uses his real name as a fake name. So is this about him taking on a new name? Yeah. Actually embracing the Logan as who he actually, that's who he actually is? <laughs> Instead of the man with no name, he is the man with a name. <laughs> I have I have lost monkey. I'm sorry. What? Are you aware of Metal Gear Solid as a concept? Oh wait, yeah, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, I I understood what you said. But no. No, I am not. Oh, okay. Well, so you're aware that there's a solid a guy called Solid Snake. He's the protagonist, right? No. I did not know that until 10 seconds ago. All you need to know is really, he's a spy. He's a secret agent type fellow. And his name is Solid Snake. And in the first game, he goes up against this, oh, ninja, whose name is like Gray Fox or something like that. Whatever. But anyway, so then there's this Irish version called Irish Metal Gear Solid, where they've dubbed it over with like funny Irish voices and, and they're saying weird stuff. I'm trying to make this sound as whimsical as possible because, uh, you know, I'm appealing to the land which has commodified my culture. We can trash our own culture too, thank you, which is the plot of Logan. <laughs> I got there. At one stage, Gray Fox in the Irish Metal Gear Solid, he approaches him and he goes, Solid Snake says like, who are you? And Gray Fox is like, I don't have a name. And then Solid Snake goes, but my name is Solid Snake. And he goes, oh, I, I, I meant in a different way. That's what it reminded me of. This just reminds me of Maisie Williams now. I'm so sorry. You should never have me on a podcast again. <laughs> but never call on you again. Friendship ended with Nigel. <laughs> it's kind of like Deadpool. It's hard to figure out anything negative to say about this film or anything really constructive. It was just solid. And I guess this is really the last time, other than any time Ryan Reynolds invokes him, this is really the last time we see him. And it's his favorite film. And I would say that's because it's probably the most fleshed out version of Logan. Because, you know, Mangold does a lot of good work with him in The Wolverine. You know, this whole narrative is about his body breaking down. I'm not entirely sure about what the quote unquote science behind that is, but I don't care. On a metaphorical level, it's, it's the breakdown of him as a person. All the things that happened to him, you know, at Alkali. Whatever his personhood was, robbed of it. And he never really deals with the trauma of that because he forgot it. And then he tried to live a life as like a, what is it Charles says, as a cage fighter in Canada or something like that. And then when he gets his memories back, the way he deals with that is being a part of the, the team. Although, as Charles says, he was never really part of the team. You know, he says these things in anger. This is 
you know, Logan at the end of his life having to reconcile, to reckon with what, what his life has been. And I can imagine that would be hard. So, I mean, that's what we're seeing in this movie. And that's, it's good work. It's good character work. Turns out he doesn't just sing and dance. He slice, he dice, but most importantly, he just wants to sing nice. How do we feel about the cinematography of this film? Because I think that you can, and I think that there have been many good examples of this, of making a superhero film that just looks very nice. This feels like this feels like it was made for an award season film. <laughs> like it's just so well shot, so well done. It is grounded in realism, but not in a way that feels overly dark or gritty. There are these like amazing camera pans around, especially like when they're centered in the car and they're sort of panning from person to person in the car. Was, was there anything that really stuck out to you all in the technical side of making this film? Oh, I love a good cinematography. I love it when film cinematography, I think it makes a good film. That's one of the things I really like look for in films is where the camera is positioned and how it works and whether the camera feels like a character. Because some films are just like, oh, here's the camera and it's just going to show you this thing. Whereas in other films, like in Logan, it feels like it's reacting to stuff and it feels like it's nearly got a personality of its own, which sounds a bit like snobbish of me. I really enjoy like the shot where Logan is in the room on the bed and it's like it's taken from up in the top corner of the room just looking down. So he's framed in this like three quarter profile shot thing from above. And, like, you can see the whole room, you know, where he's, like, trying to pull his claw out where it's stuck. And it's, like, that's storytelling in itself. It really sells a film for me, if nothing else does. I really enjoyed the cinematography in Venom. The cinematography was one of the few things I enjoyed about Eternals. There's so much of the landscape shots, which are just, like, really kind of barren, desolate landscapes. And it's like, oh, well, that's... Logan's character, really. There's nothing left. It's all been stripped away. So you mentioned Venom and the Eternals as movies with good cinematography. I think the difference with Logan is it's not a superhero movie. It's not. Mangold went to make a Western that has these characters in it. And he tells us that by giving us multiple references to Shane. And, you know, there's that scene where, where Charles talks about he's giving Laura the lesson on Westerns on the TV. So, uh, you know, we're told that. Mangold gives us a point of juxtaposition where he says, remember how the scene in X-Men Origins Wolverine was with the family in the farmhouse? Let me show you how that really works. So I, 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 think, I think this is Mangold setting out to very specifically pivot away and do something different, and do something meaningful in the spirit of Westerns, which are known for, if nothing else, this cinematography work. That was actually something I was going to ask both of you, was this is clearly a very Western-style film. The landscape, which this was shot mostly in New Mexico, with some places a little bit further north in the desert, that's a very common place for them to have shot Westerns back in 50s and 60s when they were doing a lot of those. 
Logan doesn't carry a gun, but he does have a lot in common with like the old gunslinger type character, right? Like he's at the end of his life, but he's like killed everybody who's ever come against him. But there's these new threats and there's this new person. How do you feel like he did as far as creating like a Western? I've never seen a Western film in my life. Never? Not even a John Wayne? Nope. Wow. Well, you've seen one. You've seen Logan. I've seen Logan that Well, I've seen Logan twice. But yes, I'm really living up to my Discord name of I have never seen anything. You know that I don't really care for Westerns. I love them. I know you do. You grew up with them, and I did not. And I can see a good film that happens to be a Western and recognize it because it's a good film. But it's not a genre that I'm going to seek out on my own. You know a good film when you see it, and this is an example of that. There's only really three characters in this film that we've seen before. Wolverine is one, Professor X, Charles, is the other, who's played brilliantly here by Patrick Stewart, who is clearly doing his best King Lear impression, especially at the beginning. Charles in this has is being taken care of well, by... Ugh. Wolverine is taking care of Charles in this. He has him in at the beginning of the film in this old water tank, which is supposed to sort of protect the surrounding people from Charles's seizures, which are causing him to telepathically, I guess, seize up everybody around him. It's supposed to be like a dark mirror of Cerebro, right? Cerebro is allows Charles to reach out. This like water tank keeps him in. What do we think about Charles with ALS? And just the way his character has changed since the last time that we saw him in Days of Future Past. I think, yeah, I think, I don't know. Words, they're gone. I had them in my head. It's really interesting because kind of like Professor X and all of the previous films kind of had this one note role where he didn't really do much. He kind of just like was there because the whole focus was the team and what the team were doing. And yeah, sure. He had this relationship with Magneto, which, you know, was established really, really fantastically by the interplay between Sir Ian McKellen and Sir Patrick Stewart in, like, the early 2000s. But he didn't feel central to those films. And neither, weirdly, did he feel central to the reboot trilogy, where we got to see how Magneto and Professor X met. So I, I, I don't know. Like, it's in, because you've given him a change of pace and you they've definitely given more pathos which it, it supports my theory which is that there's two actors that i know of out there sir patrick stewart is one and peter capaldi is the other which are um you know people where you could give them literal uh, just a page that was covered in sewage and they would turn it into a beautiful performance like you said like like king lear you know the bit where he's like who who knows who i am and the fool says Lear's shadow, you know, like this is this is Charles Xavier's shadow, at least until they flee from what's the man's name? The man with the robot hand. Pierce. Pierce. Yeah. A uh, bit on the nose, that one. I think this I think this film to me is a Shakespearean drama for all the characters involved, really. Are you saying that Peter Capaldi can act using a script with sewage on it because Malcolm Tucker is that. I was thinking more so of Doctor Who, where you like uh, the speeches. But yeah, also Malcolm Tucker. Right, because that's what comes out of his mouth, you see. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's um, why there's that's why there's sewage on the page when they hand it over yeah, to the doctor. Yeah, uh, <laughs> see, that's what I was thinking when you said that. So we're gonna see Charles one more time, and kind of knowing what that appearance is like, and adding to it all the appearances prior, it kind of makes me think that Patrick Stewart. I feel like somebody is doing this with purpose, whether it's him acting or somebody doing the writing. But you look at this Charles Xavier and think. Was he really any good for them in the end? He was kind of an egotistic jerk who was very patriarchal and and condescending. And I mean, that's just what he did to Jean Grey. There's everything else that he... He's just kind of a jerk. He just seemed nice when he was doing it. And so, you know, in this age of... As is the way with most old white men, though. Well, yeah. I mean, I was going to say, like, even if he does have this, you know, this condition, ALS, he still is stepping into senility. And that is very common. This, this, um, and it's not out of nowhere that that kind of bitterness and anger that we see him direct at Logan, none of it ever comes out of nowhere with people. You know, I think about, uh, when with my grandfather in his very last days, nicest man you've ever met, but he started saying these mean things right at the end, and it's just it doesn't come from nowhere. It it was sad. The saddest thing was to know that that was in there all along. You don't want to know that about people. You want to think of somebody like Charles Xavier as a good person, and then to hear that leak out at the end, it makes you think, yeah, he always had these things in his head. So, I mean, it's sad, but that's the thing about King Lear, right? Like, the quote-unquote madness doesn't just come out of nowhere, and we know this. Yeah, it's because no one, like Charles Xavier, no one ever really challenged him. Like, yeah, he was against people, but it was like... Yeah, except for Eric. It's almost like he's a worse person if he doesn't have Eric. Yeah, but also, like, apart from their interactions, the only real challenges that he gets is, like, you know, we're going to destroy the world with X plot, you know? And so, by virtue of him putting this team together, he seems noble because he's prevented the destruction of the planet, or whatever the comic book storyline is. Exactly. The other thing we learn in this, although it's never directly said, it's heavily implied, and this is something that happens in the Old Man Logan comics. That he killed the He killed yeah. them. He killed the X-Men. One night, probably on accident, probably a seizure, right? And I think it's so beautifully done by James Mangold. There's no flashback. There's no, like, obvious confirmation of it. It's just there in the room with them and him and Logan. It's just there in the room with him and Logan at every point in their interactions. Yeah, the thing is as well is that, like, it probably would have happened to Logan too were it not for his healing factor, you know? Like, Charles... Charles Xavier probably would have killed Logan if he didn't have a healing factor that basically made him immortal, you know? So he has to live with, like, this guy, whether intentionally or not, tried to kill me and killed all of my closest friends. Talk about the greater good. (laughs) (laughs) I hate this. I hate this. It feels like we're doing a character assassination. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) he did it to himself. I've never liked Charles. So for me, I think this is the best version of him. And again, like you said, Patrick Stewart, just so good with this. 
just I will say this pairs really nicely with his his reprisal of Picard in the Amazon yes um, Picard series because that's another one where it's like I've you know he's picking up a legacy character and then going like well did I really do any good you know like where he's summoned in front of the tribunal and we get the, like the one f bomb in the entire series where it's like I I didn't fucking help them I just love it when you say. Whenever you mention the name of an American property and the in the service or channel that you watched it on, like you what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, you can get. I think you can still get. No, maybe you can't anymore because we don't watch it on Amazon. It's. I just think it's funny. That's all. That was an aside. It was nothing. So the other thing I wanted to talk about before we get into like the main plot points and before we talk about X-23 is the comic books. So there are comic books in this film, X-Men comics. They are not Marvel X-Men comics. These books, these comic books that we see are not real issues. Marvel would not let them use real comic books. They said they, they could use the characters and the art style, but they could not actually use like real storylines or images. So they actually made these these completely new but they're clearly borrowing so well from like that 60s and 70s style chris claremont x-men feel how do we feel about this this is almost a meta moment where you see these comic books and logan is commenting on the fact that they made these comic books about real people but none of them were actually true i think it's really really interesting because like i like the fact i like that trope in media where a person has become famous and then I like the boys does this really well as well with like the way they merchandise the seven and things like that. And it's not as it doesn't serve the same purpose textually. Oh, I hate saying that. Stop being the student. <laughs> it doesn't serve the same purpose in the boys as it does here in Logan, because the whole point of them in Logan is is like the rest of the film where he needs to reckon with everything which has happened in the past. and so. I think, like Charles Xavier as well, this whole notion that they were more heroic than they actually were. What does he say? Like, a third of it actually happened and not like that? It kind of reminds me. I, it didn't, I thought it was neat, kind of a neat little Easter egg. But Tessa, it did remind me, in the very first episode of this, we talked about the original run. Of the X-Men series. You said nobody should ever base anything off of that initial run. Going back through and editing that episode, it kind of reminds me of the thing that Logan said about how only a third of it's true and none of it happened that way. It's, it's kind of a... I thought maybe it was a wink to that initial characterization in the initial comic saying, you know, we, we disregard comic book history at will in this business. I don't think that was intentional. I just... I think it was interesting, maybe an unintentional nod to retconning. <laughs> Although in this case, he claims that it's not real, but who's to say? We, textually, Nigel, we, he, could, he could be an unreliable narrator at this point. We are presented with a document. He is the one who interprets it. Should we trust him? I think Wolverine is pro at this stage anyway. Like if it were a younger Wolverine, I wouldn't know because he doesn't have all of his memories. This whole film is him reckoning with the past. So I feel like I'm inclined to believe Wolverine as a trustworthy narrator, given 
both his status as a character within the film and also what the film is trying to achieve. You know, because the whole point is, like, well, if it didn't happen, then, you know, there's going to be no more mutants. No one believes in the dream of mutants and the ideals which the X-Men held. And so then when Laura comes along and shows the promise of a future where mutants don't need to be hunted, now, obviously, they were made to be weapons by Transigen. The fact that they can go to Eden and live out their life and then learn to help people, inspired by Wolverine's sacrifice at the end. It is the cycle of the X-Men happening again, except it's this weird thing where, like, Eden becomes Xavier's school for gifted, whatever the proper name of the X-Men school is. It becomes that, but then instead of the X being from Professor X's name directly, it the X is like the one that they have over uh, Wolverine's grave because he was an X-Man. So it's this weird thing where the cycle has started again, but I think maybe that it's going to be a lot more net positive than what we're led to believe the X-Men achieved as a net not positive but you know like the whole thing is well did we actually help people and I feel like the answer to this is yeah but these people will but let's talk about transigen alkali first because you said that this is Logan confronting the past and this is really the same company that made him into Weapon X which the version of Weapon X that we see at the end of Days of Future Past is what we're what we're kind of looking at here instead of the earlier version from the other timeline what we're told is, is that Transigen Alkali tried to raise a bunch of children as weapons. Specifically, in this case, we get Laura X-23, who is played, as you mentioned, Sam, brilliantly by Daphne Keene. She kind of has a similar origin as Wolverine, except for she was born in a lab, whereas Wolverine had to like come and volunteer to be in the lab. And so he has to reckon with his past by helping Laura not repeat the same arc that he had. And so we get this like parent-child relationship where which is great because we actually find out that she is his daughter, clone, whatever it is you want to want to call her. Well, I will just say it's very much like the Peter Capaldi thing for Logan's character, his speech in the Zygon inversion, which is you know where he like all of the stuff that he's gone through, you know, he's like I hear more screams than anyone could ever be able to count. Uh, you know, do you know what I do with that pain? Shall I tell you where, I pu- where you put it? You hold it tight till it burns your hand and you say this. No one will ever have to live like this. No one will ever have to feel this pain. Not on my watch. So I guess you could make the argument that Wolverine needed to go through all of this as a kind of metamorphosis. So that then I keep going to call her Daphne alternately. And then I was trying to think of the actress's name, and I called her Laura Kinney, which is, <laughs> I think this, maybe this isn't a Wolverine film. Maybe this is an X-23 film, and not like in an origin story sense. It's just like Wolverine needs to have gone through all of the things he did so that she doesn't. I mean, come on, the place is called Eden, for Christ's sake, pun not intended. You know, it's this idealized version. The fact that they're brought up to be weapons and they can break free of this, you know, while they're still children and they can still learn and they don't have to go to an old white man who's basically kind of a trust fund person. Is X-23 a mutant version of Black Widow? Isn't what they're doing in this movie a lot like the Red Room, but with eugenics? 
and genetic tampering. Because that's the thing, right? Like they're training these children to be soldiers. And I just started thinking about it. Like there's a lot of similarities between this and the Black Widow movie. What is it with Marvel and child soldiers? It's true. Because we get, uh, her name's Gabriella, the nurse who saves her from the, from transigen alkali. And like all the nurses break out all these kids, right? And they're all supposed to meet in this predetermined area in South Dakota. When she puts together this like PowerPoint video presentation for Logan about what happened, she says in the video, it turns out children don't want to kill. Like you can't raise them without a conscience, right? Like they will actually try to find a way out of it. And we see this disturbing image of a child committing suicide, basically, rather than than be part of this Weapon X program. But it's really interesting to compare those two. Because with Black Widow, it's like, well, all these girls just want to survive. It's definitely like you've got the nature versus nurture thing going on and then survival versus like I don't even know what you'd call it because it's not really want. Because they've proven that, like, I think that's what you get down to at the core, is that, like, is humanity a thing? Because then we have the scene where Charles is talking to Laura about the cowboy film in the hotel, and literally the cowboy film is like, it's it's an awful thing to live with a killing, you should never do it. Like, that's the whole thing. Oh, well, controversial take here from any piece of media. Killing is bad? What? I mean, Logan says that later, too, when she asks him about his nightmares and he says the bad things I've done to people. Yeah, and it's very much like, again, with the Black Widow thing, the way Loki talks to her when he's in the cell, that ledger that's dripping red, can you ever wipe it clean? The answer is no, no, you really can't. You as a person, the best you can do when you've done these terrible things is just live with it and try and help other people be better. We also get Wolverine confronting his past through an encounter with a true Weapon X, X-24, because when the child plot failed, they decided to just go ahead and straight up clone Logan, but like reprogram him to be like a pitiless killer. So we get a fight of old Logan versus young clone Logan. That's just really the least it's it's not good. I don't like it. I don't I wish they had not had it in there. It's not necessary like The Irishman. The movie. <laughs> the the movie. I realized that when I said it out loud. No, it it just it didn't need to exist. It's a good thing I'm not a man. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, "Oh, look, we can de-age Logan." Okay, great. That's not a reason to make a movie. And it still wasn't when Scorsese did it. <laughs> That's There you go. Now I'm done. It's definitely the least interesting part about the film, but like something needs to happen in that third act because like kind of the guys from Transigen, you're nearly kind of bored with them. And they're, they're very, very ineffective, despite the fact that they're led by a man with a robot hand, which I think is... That's so f- cool. I have no idea why. <laughs> I'm like, he's got a robot hand, and that is really cool. We can only watch them get destroyed by X-23 so many times. Is that what you're both saying? Kind of. Like, as good <laughs> as it is. But I think the setup that happens when Charles gets killed, that's the pinnacle of what the clone of Logan makes. And I, I kind of, like, fully expected it because of the way they kind of talked around it in the video Gabriella made, where they're like, we're moving on to something else, and the way they... The way Richard... I had forgotten Richard E. Grant was in this film. 
Richard E. Grant is my favorite actor of all time, and I had forgotten he was in this film. The way they talk around it, I was like, oh, it's just another Logan. But the whole setup where Charles is kind of like at a, a nice copacetic stage with Logan now, and he thinks it's him up until the minute where he gets killed, and he dies believing nearly that it's Logan that's killed him. Because, like, at the start of the film, he wants he wants Logan to kill him, to put him out of his misery. But now that he's found Laura, he's got something that makes him want to be better. You know what would have made this better, Tessa? Get rid of Caliban. Don't need him. Hey, I, no, I like hold on. Caliban. Get rid of Caliban. If you do that, you can put this into the first act so it makes sense, right? You can, like, foreground it or background it. And then in act three... You can foreground instead of X twenty four. This I, every time you say it's transit. Every time you say it, I'm like it's a roving band of alkali. <laughs> but no, you're saying transigen, and I get that. Basically, they contract a roving band of Hulk brothers. That would have been so much better. Like we don't need Caliban. We just need a Hulk subplot. That would have worked. Stephen Merchant as the, a whole. We could have just had Stephen Merchant because I do like Stephen Merchant, and I think he does. He makes some really interesting choices playing Caliban, but Caliban is really a plot point. He's wait, not. Wait, Gervais could be the. He he's just the way that they find. Logan and Laura. He's not really developed all that much as a character. This is one of my things about this film that everyone like acts the ever living out of this film. This is a film where everyone knows what they're doing. I don't think there's a single bad performance in this film. Maybe you could count X-24, but that doesn't really count. Because the CGI is a bit uncanny valley. Yeah. And stuff. Yeah. I think Caliban, as a mutant, like is really, really interesting. And I wish they had done more. Because his whole power is literally just the ability to sense mutants. And this is hinted at. You know, like, that he used to work with Transigent when he gets captured by Pierce, where he was basically used to turn on his own people and, you know, sniff them out. Uh, also, they tie it to, like, he was originally from the Morlocks, which is a great yes. part of the comics. Yes. Just little sewer people. I love them. We talked about this a little bit with Lazzie. The Morlocks represent a really interesting subsection of mutants because... Even within the mutants as a community, there's a lot of division because some mutants can pass, right? Like Professor X can pass. Logan can pass. But someone like Caliban or Mystique or Nightcrawler, they really can't pass at all. Well, and Mystique kind of she can. She kind of can. The point about the Morlocks is, is that the Morlocks have to live in the sewers because they're the people who can't pass. They're the people who mm. have been literally relegated to the bottom because they can't appear normal, right? They can't appear as non-mutants. So I, I think that's interesting too. And it would have been interesting to know more about that. Like, is that the motivation for Caliban turning against other mutants? I don't remember this from any of the comics. Like him being allergic to sunlight. Is that a thing yes. in the comics? Yes. Oh, okay. I was like, because in my head, I had no reference point from this. So I was like, it's a really interesting decision they've gone with to make him basically a vampire. Well, a lot of people with albinism, which is what he has, are semi-allergic to the sun or burn really easily. So maybe yeah. maybe not quite as dramatically as he does in that scene, but it is something like most people with albinism have to stay out of the sun in one way or another. So 
yeah, it makes sense. But just as dramatic as it is, it makes him seem like maybe it's played up by, you know, the mutation in his genes and stuff. But I don't know. I Like I said, I think the character is fine. I, I think you're right. Everybody is doing a great job of acting in this film. I I guess what I'm hearing, and I'm just reminded because we're talking about the albinism straight up, is that is one of those disabilities that is almost always coded as villainous, right? This guy worked for them and is going to work for them again. Like he was trying to, we, we discover toward the end of the movie that the reason he's living with Logan and Charles is atonement. He is trying to make good. The way his character dies at the end, he is it's a final act of atonement. But you really can't escape the fact that disfiguring disability equals evil, and it's something they did in this film. It's not it's not blindingly obvious to pun slightly intended, but well, it's also supposed to tell us that he's weak and yeah. that he's not able to perhaps have the moral fortitude that someone like Logan would have. It also reminds me of, what's his name? Whale. He's, he's a DC character who's albino from Black Lightning. Black Lightning. Yeah, jo- yeah. Josias Whale. The main villain of Black Lightning also has albinism, and he is, it's definitely played up as a feature of his villainy in that way. Like, this is probably a, a thing which is readily acknowledged by people who've seen the show, but it's really weird to me to find out that the villain of a show, which is about, like, black empowerment, is a person whose disability is that their skin is extremely pale. Right, and it's a big part of his character because he is black in the sense that he is ethnically African-American, but he has albinism, so his skin color is white, and so that's, like, a big tension between him and a lot of the characters on the show, which can read as interesting and it can also read as problematic depending on how you look at it. Do you remember in the Da Vinci Code where they also coded um, a person with albinism as an evil, sadistic serial killer? I haven't read that or but seen the movie, true. but Sam is nodding at me that it's true. <laughs> Paul Bettany played him. Yep. Paul Bettany. Right. He's being commanded by Sir Ian McKellen. <laughs> Whose character... In Marvel is now an albino version of himself. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, please let's. Can we talk about something else now? I'm sorry I did this. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Every time I come on the pod, like any podcast, it just rapidly gets derailed. It is fine. I we always come up with such interesting things to talk about, though. The last thing that I want to talk about before we move on to talking about the new characters and then the astonishing facts is kind of circling back around to when we talked about parents and child relationships in this, to me, the fact that we get Professor X, we get Charles, Logan, and Laura, there's supposed to be like a continuity there. Like maybe Logan can be a better father to Laura than Charles was to him. I also, I'd said this to Sam as we were watching the ending of this film, when they're like, when the children are hauling Logan up the cliff, and it's just like this camp full of children right in the woods like i said to sam i'm like this is gen z or gen alpha whatever whoever comes after them like these are like the people who have to like after we've ruined the planet and all of us old people are dying off they're the ones who have to like figure out what to do like to me this movie was ultimately kind of hopeful even though it was very uncompromising in its brutality i mean it is rated r it doesn't have any illusions about what kind of place the world is but it does have hope 
that this next generation can figure it out, that they can escape. I think it's good. I think this works as a film which talks about uncompromising natures in the same way that I think Quantum of Solace works in the same way for the character of Bond. But like, I think this does it an awful lot better because I think, I think James Mangold is a better film director and also like creator because he wrote the script for this as well, right? Yes. Quantum of Solace because this film knows when to be loud and more importantly when to be quiet first of all obviously like laura never talks for most of the film Th- that's a whole thing uh and that she communicates you know first through just like kind of uncontrolled violence and then when like they get in the car she just communicates through like the sassiest looks ever <laughs> I love her, like, very fierce cries, too. She's got such a mean mug as well. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, it's interesting, because that's what the film is being like. It's like, can we move away from violence? And the answer with Laura is, you can. Kind of. Hopefully. Where she's found people who won't harm her, and she's able to go to Eden. Logan is a film that allows enough time for you to sit with what's happening instead of breezing it away you know like avengers infinity war could have done this but with infinity war when everyone gets dusted at the end yeah it's really really sad and stuff because like you know you see people you see like captain america grasping and sitting in the ground where like bucky used to be which is his only real tie to his past and stuff, but you have the expectation that they're going to come back and everything's going to be okay and they're going to make some quips because that's what Marvel, the MCU, is like. But with Logan, like with Logan, you don't have that expectation because you go into it and you're like, Logan is going to die by the end of this film. From the opening scene, it takes him far longer than you've ever seen him before to heal from a simple gunshot wound, which I never thought I would say the phrase simple gunshot wound because <laughs> usually they're quite severe. Um <laughs> I don't know about I don't know about you, but I feel like if I were no, if somewhere someone else were shot, it would be a pretty bit like pretty big deal. I feel like I'd walk it off. So Tessa, you mentioned the family, the possibility of kind of seeing this as like a a family dynamic, you know, and, and you know Charles is Grampy Charles and Wolverine's dad and Laura's the kid. Well, they say that. They well, right? No, I. I, I know, but you also said that you really hoped that you really hoped for like some sort of Easter egg, not with Eric, but you know, that that Eden is Genosha. But it makes me think about, you know, Charles brought these these people, he rounded them all up, brought them to a school because he thought he could educate them, and then he murdered them all. But that happened later. Why does Logan die? Isn't Logan meant to be? the wise old sage. And this film could very possibly be saying, no, we don't need that because here's why. We can do better than you without you. Which is a really tough message. Just the idea that we don't need you at all. You can just all die and go away. So maybe, just maybe, we can make something of this earth before you wreck it which may very well be how Generation Alpha feels as they get older. (laughs) Let's talk really briefly about the villains of this film. So we get 
Pierce, who is the first villain we meet, who is a reaver with the robot arm, as you pointed out, Nigel. He's played by Boyd Holbrook. And we get Dr. Rice, who's played by Richard E. Grant. I will say, just off the top, I was a little disappointed that this wasn't Essex Corp. I get why James Mangold didn't do that. He wanted to make it very clear that these were the same people who had done what they had done to Logan and now were doing the same thing to these children. What was teased at the end of X-Men Apocalypse was that Essex Corp was going to make X-23. And so I was a little sad that we didn't get to see Richard E. Grant play Mr. Sinister. I would have been super happy about that. But otherwise, what did you think about Pierce and Dr. Rice? I I mean, I thought Pierce was your kind of standard superhero film villain, really. I think I wish we had seen more of Dr. Rice, mainly because he's played by Richard E. Grant. Because he can do menacing. He can do menacing so well. I wish there were a stronger villain that's a human in this film. Because the real the real villain of this film is uh, time and the actions of your past. They are not strong villains, but they don't need to be. So that's good that they're restrained in that way, I, I suppose. I agree. So I do love a good villain, but honestly, I thought that this was really good in the sense that most of these people who do these things are very mundane. Like, they're just people, but they do horrible things, like in the name of science or eugenics or whatever. And so I, I thought that was actually kind of interesting, like the idea that this is very dystopian and it's very like the enemy are just like these people who have power and we're the ones who don't have power. I also just wanted to quickly shout out Eric DeSalle, who plays Will Munson, just because as Sam mentioned, I've been watching a lot of ER and Eric DeSalle is a wonderful, wonderful actor. I loved the little family and Logan helping them with their water, even though it ended up being very tragic. I enjoyed a lot of that, those moments in the film. Let's talk about astonishing facts. All right, here's some astonishing facts about Logan. So as I mentioned, at the end of Apocalypse, Mr. Sinister is teased. In the commentary for Apocalypse, Brian Singer said that Mr. Sinister would be in the post credit scene for Logan. James Mangold said, nope. I enjoy that because anytime that Brian Singer gets noped by someone else in the franchise, it's very enjoyable. Mangold cited as his sources, as his visual inspirations for this movie, Shane, which is the movie we actually see in this from 1953, The Cowboys, which is from 1972, Paper Moon, 1973, The Gauntlet, 1977, Unforgiven, 1992, and Little Miss Sunshine, 2006, and The Wrestler from 2008. He also said that there's a lot of the Dark Knight trilogy in this film, which I can see, like the idea that it's grounded, but I don't think this film is, I think this film is more brutal than it is dark, if that makes any sense as a distinction. Mm. This is funny that you mentioned, Nigel, that you could give Patrick Stewart anything and he would be able to act anything out of it, just give this wonderful performance, because when Mangold told Patrick Stewart that they were going to watch Shane, that that was going to be a big visual point, Patrick Stewart said, oh, I've got this, and entirely improvised that scene where they're watching Shane in the bedroom of the Oklahoma City Hotel. No. When he talks about how that was one of the first memories he had at a theater as a child, that's all real. He's talking about his own childhood and how he went to go see Shane in a theater as a child, how his mother took him. Oh, I didn't know that. What the? Yeah. Patrick Stewart, stealing our hearts yet again. 
Hugh Jackman has stated in an interview that the only way he would ever reprise his role as Wolverine is if a crossover between Deadpool and Wolverine happened. I love that Hugh Jackman is so supportive of Ryan Reynolds. They're best friends. While auditioning for the part of Laura, Daphne Keene asked director James Mangold if she could improvise her lines. After Hugh Jackman started his dialogue, Keene interrupted him by yelling at him in perfect Spanish, something that was later included in the finished movie. So the fact that Laura speaks Spanish in this movie is Daphne Keene. It is all Daphne Keene, her performance there. Hugh Jackman also said that she straight up attacked him during the audition, and that's when he knew that she was going to be Laura. Incredible. The samurai sword that was presented to Logan in the Wolverine can be seen in the smelting mill where Logan and Charles are hiding. So you you do get a visual callback to the Wolverine. Mangold was so impressed by the commitment of Laura's stunt double, Risa Kilar, that he decided to give her a role in the movie. So she's actually one of the mutant children at the end. She's the pinecone girl who kills the, the guy with all of the... The Wood Shavings. This is also the first superhero movie to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. So this was the first Oscar nod to a superhero movie. It was also the first superhero movie to be nominated for screenwriting since The Incredibles in 2004. And that is all the astonishing facts I have. I'm going to send it over to Sam for Uncanny Stats. I mean, I said earlier that I don't think it's a superhero movie, so I'm sure that's the distinction people made when they sucked it up and voted for this to get it nominated. (laughs) As promised, I am going to compare this movie to Deadpool's budget and box office. So as we remember, Deadpool was given the paltry, by big budget superhero standards, $58 million budget. This movie, Logan was given 97 million, still less than the mothership entries into the franchise. As you'll recall, Deadpool, oh, you know, made substantially more than its budget, twice over. 132 million opening weekend domestic. Logan, much like the Wolverine, did not make its budget back in the first weekend domestically it's 88.4 million out of a 97 million dollar budget now as we always say if the domestic returns aren't great the movie may have good international returns or a long tail now deadpool had everything it made 782 million dollars it really was the perfect storm of a movie logan more respectable 619 million still many times over its budget but not the best return on investment. That is still Deadpool. The top five, the weekend that Logan came out, obviously Logan, which displaced Get Out. Third place was The Shack. People saw that movie. (laughs) Fourth was the Lego Batman movie. And number five, another franchise movie, John Wick 3. Parabellum. It's funny that you bring that up. I was going to mention earlier that a lot of the action sequences, like the long shot action sequences in Logan, remind me of the first John Wick movie, which came out three years prior to this one. In my all new, all different segment, I have two recommendations if you are interested in reading some comics that feature some of these characters or themes. So the obvious one 
to recommend would be Old Man Logan, which is a brilliant post-apocalyptic story. I mean, I do recommend it. However, I almost don't think this is the comic that this film is based on because there are so many differences beyond the idea that Logan is an old man. That's just something to think about. But I do recommend it. I also, I'm sorry, I'm recommending three things. I have three recommendations. I recommend X-23, Volume 2, which is written by Marjorie Liu. Those of you who read comics will know that she wrote Monstrous. And so I, I definitely recommend it. It's a, it's a one-shot. It's very, very good about X-23, Laura. And then I also recommend All New Wolverine, which is the collection that Sam was talking about near the beginning with X-23, Gabby, and Jonathan. All right, it is time to say goodbye to one grumpy old super soldier and say hello to another. Because Cable. cable. Yeah, because okay. Cable's tomorrow. Nathan Summers. Nathan Summers. By the way, if you saw this movie in theaters, you saw a little three-minute Deadpool one-shot slash tease for Deadpool 2 in which he takes an inordinately long amount of time to change into the Deadpool outfit in a phone booth while the original Superman theme from the 1978 film is playing on the phone booth, scrawled on the outside of the phone booth, as Tessa reminded me, is a uh, piece of graffiti that says Nathan Summers is coming soon. Which, and that's, and that's Cable, right? Yeah. I totally knew that. (laughs) So join us tomorrow for the next installment of the 13 Days of X-Men when we'll be talking about Deadpool 2 with friend of the podcast, Jack. Watch along with us, tweet at us, email us, let us know all your miraculous mutant thoughts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Visit our website, monkeyoffmybacklog.com. Nigel, where can people find you on Twitter and in their headphones? You can find me on Twitter, at SpicyNigel, where, uh, what have I tweeted about recently? I've tweeted about tangentially, uh, I've tweeted tangentially about Squid Game, which is a show I watched two episodes of. Also, my Hot Chocolate Reviews. Also about Pokemon, which is a thing I haven't seen. A song I have in my head. Oh, a picture of my dog. Uh, and then you can find my podcasts, Nanny Og's Book Club, everywhere you get podcasts. And Archive Admirers, wherever you get podcasts. And Hyperfixations, wherever you get podcasts. Especially that Nanny Og Book Club one. I wonder who co-hosts that with you. Uh, Sam. Some person. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's I, you. Yeah. I'm I'm known for for my love of Neil Gaiman. So <laughs> I I uh, by the way, everybody if you, if you if you're listening to this episode and you are not familiar with the hot chocolate reviews, please go to at Spicy Nigel and and find them. And then if you, if you, like me, are as deeply interested in them, you know, please let both of us know. We have thoughts. No, stop sending people my way because now they're going to challenge my, they're going to challenge my rating system. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. that's how you that's know they're right. invested. Yeah. You yes. Can, you can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine. Or on Letterboxd at Archie Leach 9. That's true. Our theme song is Jingle Bells by Scott Holmes and can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. 
Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Happy holidays, and get that monkey off your back, bub.